Hello, welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me on my website, live to 110.com, and on my new website, mineralpower.com. That's my healing and detox program. If you're suffering from low energy, from brain fog, from chronic illness, you have trouble losing weight, toxins are inevitably contributing to those problems. So you, you have to detox your body, and that includes. Uh, customizing supplements to your body chemistry, taking the minerals that your body needs, and uh, and essentially detoxing your body, doing that with targeted supplements based on what toxins you have in your body, using infrared saunas, and a lot of the methods and diet and lifestyle changes that I recommend and talk about on the Live to 110 podcast. Go check out my program at mineralpower.com. Our guest today is Morley Robbins. He's known as the Magnesium Man. We're going to be rethinking iron today. A lot of people are mistakenly told that they need to be supplementing iron if they have low ferritin levels or if they're anemic. We're going to be talking about the problems with that and why everyone today is so toxic with iron and how they become more and more toxic with iron as they age. The testing you can do to assess out your actual uh, iron status, um, and um, you know why iron toxicity is one of the leading underlying causes of chronic illnesses, oxidative stress, and inflammation. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to One Ten podcast is solely informational in nature. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in anything that we suggest today on the show. Our guest, uh, Morley Robbins, is the founder of the Magnesium Advocacy Group at uh, gotmag.org. That's his website. It's an NFP organization, which is dedicated to educating the public and health professionals about the central role magnesium metabolism plays in the human body. He has been actively serving the healthcare field for the last 35 years, both as a healthcare consultant and as a hospital executive. Prior to becoming a wellness coach, Mr. Robbins served as a principal in several national healthcare consulting firms with a primary emphasis on strategy, market development, and creating consumer-driven organizations. Since entering the world of wellness, Mr. Robbins has completed the Well Coaches training for becoming a wellness coach and has completed the year-long curriculum with the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York to serve as a health counselor, health coach. He is devoting his professional attention to being a health futurist and delivers lifestyle programs and wellness interventions designed to enable individuals and communities to attain healthier futures. He will be preaching to others what he has practiced for the last 30 years. Mr. Robbins received a BA in biology from Denison University in Ohio and holds an MBA from George Washington University in healthcare administration with additional concentrations in finance and marketing management. He can be reached online at morley at magnesiumman.com. And you can also gain additional information about the importance of mineral balancing by visiting his YouTube channel. Morley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So our show is titled Rethinking Iron. That's a pretty provocative title. Are you suggesting that we (laughs) might have this entire issue with iron wrong? Because a lot of doctors out there saying that 
a lot of people are iron deficient. We need to supplement with iron. What is your take on it? Oh my, here we go. All right. Uh, yes, it's all backwards. Um, you and I have had several conversations in the past and this has been a long time in the making. Uh, I've been doing this work now for about seven years and it was only about nine months ago that I began to understand what was going on with iron. And as you know, I'm, you know, I have this passionate affair with magnesium and, um, I've had a lot of, um, pleasure with that. And a lot of my clients had trouble restoring their magnesium status for years. I could never figure it out. And then about nine months ago, I was reading an article by an Italian iron researcher who referred to the subject in a very different way. Because I knew, and we both know, that, that stress causes magnesium loss. And that's like one of, the, one of the great axioms, and that was certainly studied extensively by Hans Selye and others. But um, I never, never really thought about iron until this iron researcher referred to the greatest stress in the human body is from iron stress. I went, oh my gosh. And so all the tumblers began to fall into place. And I've started to look at the iron issue with a very different perspective. Because, you know, we, you and I had earlier conversations about copper and then ceruloplasmin, which is the enzyme that makes copper usable. Well, when you really get into the, the nitty gritty of why does the body have ceruloplasm, one of the principal reasons for it is it enables the transport and the usability of iron. And it's, um, I mean, it's an amazing concept when you, when you get into it, but the topic of ceruloplasm is not uppermost on most practitioners' minds. In fact, very few that I know of even know what it is, much less measure it or know what to do with it. And as I began to, to really get into it, uh, I started to realize that there is a tremendous amount of confusion about iron and about what anemia is. And I think it's led to a lot of, of misdiagnosis and mistreatment uh, worldwide. I mean, this isn't just down the street, this is everywhere. And what's interesting is that um, starting about 1860 was when they first really started understanding what anemia was. And it had a very precise meaning in terms of low levels of hemoglobin and low levels of hematocrit. So that was the exact origin of the concept of anemia. But it was also well understood um, from 1860 to about 1970 that when someone was anemic, that that meant that they had low bioavailable copper because every facet of red blood cell metabolism is copper dependent. Let me give you an example. So the, the signal to produce a red blood cell originates in the adrenal gland. 
and it's the hormone erythropoietin that gets made there and signals the bone marrow to make more red blood cells. Well, you can't make that hormone without bioavailable copper. Then once that signal is received in the bone marrow, it starts to make heme, the heme protein. We can't make heme protein unless you have bioavailable copper. And what's the origin of hemoglobin? Is the protoporphin ring. We can't put four heme together unless you have bioavailable copper. Then the rate-limiting step of making hemoglobin is called ferrochelatase enzyme. And that's the, that's the enzyme that actually serves as a crane to drop the iron into the, the protoporphin ring to create hemoglobin. And ferrochelatase doesn't work unless you have bioavailable copper. And then you monitor uh, the, the viability of this process and the red blood cell is monitored by heme oxygenase. Well, guess what? Got to have copper to do that too. So every facet of red blood cell metabolism is dependent on copper. And that's what they knew from 1860 to about 1970, that if hemoglobin's off, then the, the copper's off. And that was considered the engine of red blood cell metabolism because that's where the action is. Let's make some hemoglobin to provide oxygen so that the cell can make some ATP. It's really important to have oxygen to do that. Well, then in 1972, a British team published some research about the ferritin protein. And see, ferritin is supposed to be in the spleen, it's in the bone marrow, and it's in the liver. But it also shows up in the blood. And what they did was they put the spotlight on ferritin in the blood, and they made it very clear in this early uh, literature that it was supposed to just be a small amount. And suddenly it began to get twisted and distorted. And now we've got people trying to get their ferritin up into the low 100s, which is utter insanity. And that's the way it was for about 40 years until um, a physiologist from the University of Manchester, his name is Douglas B. Kell, he's a PhD physiologist at, um, in, in England, who was recently knighted for his work. And he's been putting the spotlight on ferritin and just how toxic it is inside the body. In fact, his one of his signature articles is called um, Iron Misbehaving Badly. And so when someone publishes an article of some substance, you would expect it to be about, I don't know, 10, 12 pages long and have maybe 100 citations. Well, his article, this particular article, is about 14 pages long, but it has 2,400 <laughs> citations. A little OCD, <laughs> which we want, in our we want that in our researchers. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely want OCD. And, and what's interesting about it is he's making a very clear statement that not only does medicine have it wrong, they have it dead wrong. And that ferritin is, it's a storage protein. And when it shows up in the blood, it's a sign of damaged tissue. 
And what most people probably don't know is that each molecule of ferritin can hold up to 4,500 atoms of iron. That's a lot of iron. And I don't know how much ferritin is in a unit of measurement, but when people's ferritin gets up into the hundreds, it gets to be a really serious problem. And the body doesn't work right when it gets too high. And so the analogy that I use is that that many of us drive cars, and many of us have had engine trouble with our cars, and when we have that happen, we take it to a mechanic. And we expect the mechanic to open up the hood and look at the engine, not run around to the trunk and start measuring the size of the trunk. And that's what's happened to medicine today around this whole issue of iron is they're completely ignoring the engine, which is called hemoglobin. They're completely ignoring the oil, which I call ceruloplasmin. And all they're doing is obsessing about how big is your trunk. Mm -hmm. And I think it's patently absurd. And I think it's causing a lot of misery around the world. And I know it's causing a lot of symptoms because most people that I work with, I'm not sure what your experience is, but most people in my neck of the woods are convinced that they are, quote, anemic Mm -hmm. and that they need more iron when in fact, as we get into both the hair test and the blood test, it's very clear that they're iron toxic. And what's beginning to pop up on the mag group now is, I think it's happened twice, maybe three times now, people who were convinced that they were iron anemic start doing the mother nature protocol to increase ceruloplasm, and suddenly the gates open up and the iron starts flooding out and their ferritin starts popping up and the the serum iron starts popping up and their saturation starts popping up and doctors are baffled by it. In fact, one one magpie uh, had this happen and she met with the doctor to go over the the numbers from the panel that I had put together because the doctor never thought to do this. And He's like, wow, your, your iron's really coming up. That's great. Uh, so what, what kind of iron are you taking? She said, well, I'm not taking any iron. She said, I'm taking the cofactors, but I'm not taking the iron. He goes, you're not taking any iron at all? She goes, well, you know, I, I am having liver occasionally, but that actually has more copper than iron. And he got this really puzzled look on his face, and he goes to his computer and says, patient takes iron to increase iron. So he falsified the record. He knowingly falsified the record. And what I learned from another magpie who had something similar to her happen, she said that the doctor actually revealed why he did that. Because he said he wouldn't get paid for the office visit if he didn't have a statement that would comply with their protocol. Hmm. So doctors are paid to give people iron to make the iron go up when in fact they're iron toxic. Mm-hmm. So I think the level of confusion around this is staggering and it affects just about every condition that you know of, not the least of which is thyroid disease and the whole MTHFR psychodrama 
is all triggered by too much iron in the liver. What's what's um, what's MPHFR all about? Methylation. People don't have good methylation patterns. Wonder why they don't have good methylation patterns? Well, when you have low ceruloplasm, as most people are experiencing, the the target number is 35 milligrams per deciliter. Most people are between 18 and 22, which means they're about 40% low. A fever is a 4% differential. Most people have a 10, 10 times the fever differential in their ceruloplasm, and their body knows it. So the body's not working right. Mm-hmm. When ceruloplasm is too low, the body is forced to store iron. It's not like, well, you know, it's Thursday, and I think I'll store a little bit of iron. It's like, no, it must store iron. It's an absolute physiological necessity because the body knows it can't mobilize that iron. It can't use that iron because it doesn't have ceruloplasm. Mm-hmm. And when the iron starts to build up in the liver, it starts to change the pH of the liver, it starts to change the level of oxygen in the liver, it starts to change the performance of the liver. And what's curious is that when there's too much iron in the liver, you can't make ceruloplasm. And it's curious that there are 200 methyltransferase enzymes in the liver. And guess what they require? Bioavailable copper. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So if there's too much iron, that means there's not enough copper. And then you don't have methyltransferase enzymes. And so then there's all sorts of problems that ensue. Let's go back to the basics. Why do people have low ceruloplasm? Um, the biggest reason why people have low ceruloplasm is because they take vitamin D. I mean, it's, that's, that's the absolute reason. Mm-hmm. So what ceruloplasm does is, is it doesn't allow the... What, what happens is when you take cod liver oil, excuse me, let me back up, when you take um, synthetic vitamin D as a supplement, that puts tremendous stress on the liver, and the liver runs on retinol. Retinol is vitamin A. Retinol is very different than beta carotene. They're not, they're not even close to being the same. And Keep in mind that our heart is 100% muscle, but our liver is 100% fat. And if you take the liver and you were to squish it out so that it's one cell in height, it would cover seven football fields. It's a pretty dense organ, but it loves fat, especially loves vitamin A. And when you have too much D-only supplements, it chases the A out. And vitamin A and retinoic acids are an absolute necessity to make ceruloplasm. Another reason why you would have low ceruloplasm is um, there's not enough magnesium. Magnesium is very important in the production of ceruloplasm. Um, You don't have enough copper. The the American diet um, is very hard on certain 
minerals, as you know, one of them is copper. And in order to absorb copper, you got to have fat in the diet. Know anybody who's on a low-fat diet, like most of the people in your practice? Because most people have been trained to be terrified of fat, and you can't absorb copper unless you have fat. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of reasons. Another is that um, like high fructose corn syrup is very hard on the liver, and it really throws imbalance in the liver so that you have lower levels of copper and too much iron. Calcium, a lot of people take calcium supplements. That's very destructive to this process and really disrupts the, the, the production of ceruloplasm. And vitamin so, C as well, ascorbic acid, correct? And ascorbic acid, absolutely. Okay. And, and I think that's, you know, there's there's still a lot of confusion around that. Well, you know, oh gosh, you know, Linus Pauling took ascorbic acid. Well, I happen to know someone who was in his living room and asked him, what exactly are you taking? And it wasn't ascorbic acid. Mm-hmm. That's a, you know right from the horse's mouth. So I don't I don't believe all of this hype about Linus Pauling did this or Linus Pauling did that. But what I do know is that there is a material difference between ascorbic acid, which is the shell, and the whole food vitamin C, which has an enzyme tyrosinase at the core, and inside the tyrosinase enzyme is a a three-sided pyramid. And at the points of that pyramid is a copper atom. So there are four copper atoms inside that tyrosinase molecule. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely essential for making ceruloplasm. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the body that, that can't make it then becomes iron toxic. And what happens is as the iron builds, magnesium drops. As the magnesium drops, inflammation starts to build. And it's, it's very clear that there's a relationship between uh, the concept of inflammation, it's, it's called chronic inflammation, and there's even a classification called the anemia of chronic inflammation. And I think what's happening is many people are being classified as anemic because their ferritin is low which is not the right molecule or not the right marker to use, but it's being used with prevalence. And it's showing up low, and then people are taking iron supplements, getting iron infusions, and it's throwing the body into an absolute tailspin. I've got a client in Stuttgart, Germany, who, she's 34 years old, was deemed anemic by her internist, got two infusions, went south very quickly after those infusions and she started to have night sweats I mean dripping night sweats and she went to change the bed after like a week of this taking place and as she pulled back the sheet she noticed that the mattress cover was bright red where she had been lying and she realized that that was the iron Mm -hmm. coming out in her sweat Hmm. So it really begs the question of, so what's what are the uh, hot flashes are? What are hot flashes when you go into menopause? Is that the body still trying to get rid of iron? And so she's been doing the, the protocol and has had an amazing recovery because of that. Hmm. And I've got another client in Los Angeles, 
A week before she was set to deliver, the doctor, they, they do blood tests before the, the, the due date, discovered that she was quote-unquote anemic and gave her an iron infusion. Well, she almost died, and the baby is a hot mess now because of that iron. And so I guess I'm maybe what I'm trying to do is sound a, a bell here that people need to really step back and rethink what this whole mineral is all about and that um, probably the, the best analogy that I can come up with is everyone has probably seen a ventriloquist act. You know, like our parents grew up with Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen and there are a lot of notable uh, ventriloquists out there. And everyone loves the dummy because the dummy is very funny and the dummy's doing all sorts of funny things with their head and, and they're yammering away and we're just laughing our, our heads off. And we start to ignore the comedian who's making it all possible. Mm-hmm. What well, turns out... Is that, that a, a big pharma doctor analogy? Or the doctor yeah, is the dummy? Big pharma doctor. <laughs> but, but inside our body, the dummy is iron and copper is the comedian. Because what you'll find is that in every iron enzyme, there's either copper or vitamin C or ceruloplasm hiding in the background. And they don't like to talk about that. You have to really dig to find it. But it's an absolute fact that iron can't do diddly without copper. Mm-hmm. So think of it Think of it this way. Uh, you, I'm sure, work in, have worked in a building, or maybe you do work in a building, that has steel girders. And the steel girders are made of iron that's been made into steel with some carbon added. Do they use that iron to transport electricity around the building or do they use copper wires? And that's the way that you, yeah, that's the way the human body is. We have iron sulfur clusters that are very instrumental in different functions of our mitochondria and other, other aspects of our body, but we don't use iron to transmit electricity and energy. It's all about copper. And we have um, fascia from the tip of our toes to the top of our heads that's made by a copper-dependent enzyme called lysyl oxidase. It's, a, it's an energy grid in the body. We, the, the nerve um, covering, the covering around the nerves it's a myelin sheath. That myelin sheath must be made with lysyl oxidase, which is copper dependent. Mm-hmm. There's no iron there. Iron doesn't play any metabolic role. And so I think a lot of the research has become distorted to make iron out to be this metabolic hero, when in fact I think it's more structural and it's absolutely dependent on copper in order to make anything happen. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, the body is extremely complicated, like you're, you're discussing with iron metabolism, and, you know, it's just too simplistic to think a physician measures your ferritin levels, and it's low. Well, then take iron. Fix the problem. It's, yeah. There's no way. I mean, it's just the body is far, far more complex. That's exactly right. And, and what's, what's frightening is... Um, 
the, the sheer simplicity with which they approach these really complicated problems. And I think that um, thyroid's pretty complicated. I think you would agree with that. And I think vitamin D metabolism is pretty complicated. It took me about 18 months to figure out vitamin D metabolism. Then when I started to get into it, I was like, whoa. And then it's taken almost a year to really begin to understand what this whole dynamic is around iron. And I, I truly believe we've got it backwards. And I truly believe we need to rethink how we think about it, how we measure it, and how do we interpret those results, particularly with the need to have the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone from understanding iron metabolism is called ceruloplasm. Because if you don't know what the ceruloplasm level is, you cannot interpret an iron panel. And one of my clients is over in Spain. And so she was going to get the iron panel and, and, and she specifically asked for ceruloplasm. And the, the technician said, wow, this is interesting. He says, very, very rare that anyone would ever ask for that. And he said, whoever came up with this panel really understands iron metabolism. Now, I'm not, there's no pride of authorship here, but it's, it's very clear what the literature is saying is that if you don't know what ceruloplasm is, you don't really understand what iron's doing in the body. And I think that's one of the most important messages for people to get from this conversation is that there's some fundamental blood markers that people need to have an understanding of before they start popping iron supplements or start getting iron infusions, because I think it's it is completely um, off base without those that understanding. Well, let's talk about the the testing that people should be getting a, a, a correct iron panel because most physicians, you say they suspect you have fatigue or anemia, they'll just check the ferritin. What should they actually be testing? And if you can't get it from your doctor, where can you go? Yeah. Um, so real quick, real quick uh, digression on iron-poured blood. Mm-hmm. We, we, I grew up with, maybe you didn't because you're still young and all that. I'm an old man. <laughs> but in the 1950s, there was a product called Geritol. You probably have heard of it. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was presented as what to take when you had, quote-unquote, iron-poured blood. As soon as a company promoted that product, they were taken to court because it was an absolute lie that iron would improve the vitality of the individual. It took 10 years for the courts to resolve that, and it was eventually decided that they had to take the ads off the air. But in that decade, they had already sealed the deal. And now everyone thinks, oh, I'm tired, I need more iron. And that's the origin of it was in the early 1950s. So how do you, how do you test for it? What what I've started to focus on are eight different markers. I do a magnesium RBC, red blood cell measurement of magnesium. I do a plasma zinc and a serum copper and a serum ceruloplasmin. And then I look at the iron side of the house and I look at serum transferrin, look at... Uh, serum iron level in the blood, look at TIBC, total iron binding capacity, 
which when you divide um, the serum iron by the TIBC, you'll get the percent saturation. And then the last thing I look for is ferritin. Um, many doctors will do the iron side of the panel. Uh, invariably, when people ask for uh, like the magnesium RBC, they'll get back a serum magnesium, which is, I, I bet out of a thousand people who've ordered it, <clears throat> maybe 10 have gotten it done right. It's just, I think it must be the labs that just revert to the serum measurement. And the reason why I look at, at the zinc and copper is I, I, I don't buy into this um, confusion about zinc and copper and oh my gosh, but it's important to see how iron is affecting the zinc status in the blood, particularly in the plasma. And very often people will present with low zinc and many people even be, will think that they have pyroluria because of, of, of the loss of zinc, when in fact it's not, that's not the case at all. What is pyroluria? It is dysfunctional red blood cell metabolism, principally because ferrochelatase is not doing its job to put iron into the center of the protoporphyrin ring. And why is that not happening? Because there's not enough bioavailable copper. So that's why it's important to really understand the different components of the blood test. And if people are not able to get that from their from their uh, physician, or as I like to refer to them as their favorite mineral denialist, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they can order it from request a test. And there's a um, when you go into the uh, website, there's a um, index over to the left that says uh, test packages. You can go there. And then there's an alphabet menu in the center. And go for the letter M for Maggie. And there's a um, magnesium copper zinc panel with iron panel. Mm -hmm. That's the one that people want to get. It costs $179. And I want folks to understand that 100% of that goes to the lab. I don't, I don't see any part of that. Uh, I probably should raise the rates and, and you know skim off some, but I I don't think that. Way. But but the um, the cost is is one seventy nine, and that gives people a lot of, of insight. And I often uh, want people to do the hair test to get a broad array of the minerals, so we can put that blood test in the context of what what's also going on overall inside the body. But but particularly for people who are having issues with their iron. That's the panel that seems to have the best impact for understanding what's going on. And so let's talk about, um, you know, the 30 articles you've written on the, over the last year or so on iron toxicity. And you post these in your, your MAG Facebook group, the Magnesium Ad Advocacy Group, which, you know, has over 50,000 members, which the listeners can join if they like. Lots of good info, knowledgeable people in there. So let's talk about what you've written about in the articles, which is the connection between magnesium and iron. Yeah, no, it's um, the, um, I've actually just written number 35. <laughs> uh, and we're coming up on 58,000 members. Wow. Um, so what have I learned? Um, what, I would, what I would invite folks to do is take a piece of paper 
and draw a big giant X on it. And, and the line that's coming down is magnesium status from cradle to grave. And, and as we age, we deal with more stress and we lose more magnesium. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. And when we're 16 and we break up with our boyfriend or our girlfriend, oh, it's the end of the world and it's really stressful. But, but when we're in our 60s and our spouse dies or our parents start to die or there's some economic crisis in our life, that's a different magnesium burn rate. And so there is an acceleration of, of magnesium loss. But the line going up is iron status from cradle to grave. And every day we're on this planet, we're adding iron in our body. And they forgot to tell us that. Uh, there's a lot of iron needed for the first, you know, 10 to 12 years of life as we're developing bones and you know, getting our infrastructure underway. But after that point, we're adding iron and we happen to live in one of the most toxic countries in, in, in the world because they've been adding iron to our food since 1941. It's like, I didn't know that. It's, it's called iron enriched. Well, the only people that are getting enriched are the pharmaceutical firms. But the, the point is that the um, iron was, was added in 1941. They're not adding organic iron. They're adding iron filings. Mm -hmm. it, it, it causes rust immediately. It's literally chips, like little micro yeah. iron chips from, you know, it, our bodies can't absorb that. No, not at all. Um, our bodies store it. They don't absorb it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so in 1972, the FDA sought to increase the amount of iron by, 50, by 100%. And 37 scientists from around the world came to Washington, D.C. to testify and basically said, what are you trying to do, kill people? And so they backed off magnanimously. Yeah, right. And they only increased it by 50%. Then in the 1980s, they added something called high fructose corn syrup. Hmm. What does that do? Well, high fructose corn syrup has a unique ability to lower copper levels in the liver and increase iron levels in the liver. Hmm. Not, not the right direction to go in. And then in the 1990s, what did they do? They added GMO and GMO pesticides. And what do, what do they do? The exact same thing that high fructose corn syrup does. Mm -hmm. So we have this toxic load of iron being added to our body. And it builds year by year. Yeah. <clears throat> and, it, and it especially builds in guys bodies and women have a biological advantage because you have a monthly blood loss and because you Yay, have a for once yeah, that's right <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely women live longer for two reasons one they're smarter and they have a monthly blood loss and and it was actually um, a cardiologist by the name of Jerome's, Jerome Sullivan who figured that out in medical school he was sitting in class one day and said, wow, this must be why. And he set out to prove it. he was right. And he changed cardiology because of his curiosity. And that works great for 40 years for women. 
And then as soon as they enter menopause, they're adding iron at the exact same rate as men. What's changed in the modern era is that women are adding way too much supplemental iron because they're being crazed about their iron status because their doctor doesn't know how to interpret a blood test. And so there's a, a significant uptick in um, iron levels in people, but it's presenting as low iron. Again, anemia of chronic inflammation. And when there's too much iron and not enough magnesium, the body will present in a chronically inflamed state. And in the literature that I'm reading, the there there is a reference to the fact that dietary iron overload acts the same way in the body as an infection. And what is very well known in the world of iron research is that when the body is under assault by a pathogen that causes an infection, the body will sequester iron. And that's exactly what's happening. People's bodies are pulling the iron back out of the blood because it, it senses that there's a threat there. It's acting as though there's an infection. And so that is creating all sorts of confusion. But in terms of the some of the insights that I'm getting from um, with these articles, Basically, what the articles are doing is connecting dots for people, helping people understand that it isn't iron anemia, that it's iron toxicity, that every conceivable condition that people have ever heard of is produced by iron-induced oxidative stress. That if the body, and particularly if the liver, is overwhelmed with iron, it can't make three key antioxidant enzymes called superoxide dismutase, catalase, and glutathione peroxidase. Those are the three most important antioxidant enzymes in the body, with the exception of ceruloplasm, and, and all four of them are dependent on bioavailable copper. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And what's, what's even more fascinating is when you find out that the modern antibiotics cause about a 40% decrease in the functionality of those antioxidant enzymes. That's a significant event. 40% loss. So try picture, try picturing a walk without your leg and your arm. That's about 40% of your body. And that's what's happening. People are completely unaware that the, that the medication that they're taking is destroying that function. And what's really ironic is that the superoxide dismutase is, in fact, Mother Nature's antibiotic. And the reason why people got the infection is they don't have enough bioavailable copper because they have too much iron on their diet. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what's that's what's twisting everything up. Everyone so eating like gluten and grains and rich grains. You know, hamburgers and anything made with, with gluten and grains, guess what? You're getting a ton of iron with that. Every, people are doing that three times a day. That's right. But the, but, the, but the truth of the matter is it was never about gluten. That was all smokescreen. It's about the iron 
that they've been adding to the wheat flour. So when you read Bill Davis's book, Wheat Belly, which is an excellent book, I, I gobbled that up years ago, there are three parts to the book. And the second part is about the comorbidities of so-called gluten sensitivity or celiac sensitivity. And there are nine chapters in that second section. And I studied that. I was looking at it. I was like, well, eight of the nine are clinical signs of magnesium deficiency. So when I read that book two or three years ago, whatever it was, I didn't understand the iron issue. And now I look at it and I go, well, it makes perfect sense. It never was about gluten. That's all smokescreen. It's about the iron because people with gluten sensitivity and celiac can go to Europe and they can eat the wheat there. Mm-hmm. That's me. That's yeah. me. Why? Because they don't enrich the they don't enrich the wheat. They don't enrich the wheat. They refuse to enrich the wheat. Mm-hmm. And so people need to understand that that when it says enriched flour, that that means that they're adding iron filings to it, mm-hmm. and they add iron. They have enriched flour in what? Like you were saying, in hamburger buns, and sandwiches, and pizzas, and you know the list goes on and on and on. Well, my roommate from college. Uh, his name is Dave. And I think he was the model that Michelangelo used to make the statue, Dave. <laughs> this guy is just, he's ripped. I mean, it's just incredible. And here, you know, we're about the same age, you know, he's 62, 63. And at, I saw him at my uh, daughter's wedding back in October. And he was a little listless. I said, you need to get this blood test, man. We got to find out what's going on. So, unbeknownst to me, you know, he, he went back. Was his wife is a doctor? She's a radiologist, but she focuses on wellness now. And I, I hadn't talked to him since that wedding. And then I saw him at my younger son's wedding just a couple weeks ago in Colorado, and he'd gotten the blood test. Guess what his ferritin was? Seven oh five. The bells start ringing violently at 300. Mm-hmm. So he was at 705. So he started to follow my protocol, which is do you know start to change your diet, obviously, and start to do the protocol, but also start to give blood. So he started to donate blood, and ferritin came down in, in 40 to 50-point increments. And then he was reading some of the articles that I was writing, and, and he says, cereal. Well, he had been snacking on cereal for years. Mm-hmm. He cut out the cereal, and his ferritin dropped 250 points. Wow. That's what's killing America, is is the food that we're eating, not knowing that it's been enriched. Yeah, yeah and so I was going to ask you, that begs the question, how do you get rid of iron, and you know, how often should people be bloodletting or giving blood? Well, it's a it, great question. Um, not to imply that all the other questions aren't great, because yeah. they're always questions. <laughs> but but um, no, the, the, the research is very clear that people who donate blood live longer than people who don't hmm. donate. I'm going to start donating blood. Yeah. So, you know, you can do it. The, the, the restrictions here are you, you can only do it every 60 days. Um, I think a lot of people who do regularly give blood either do it once a quarter or a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. And again, they, they outlive the people who don't. Um, 
if if someone has elevated ferritin, I encourage them to donate blood. Um, I've got some clients who have um, notably elevated blood, and they're working with phlebotomists to do it on a, on a regular scheduled basis. A lot of the people that I'm, I'm working with have a ferritin between 100 and, say, 250, and so they're just doing the routine every 60 days, donating. And what's amazing is how great they feel when they start getting rid of mm. that ferritin. And what you have to do is go back and read Douglas Kell's Iron Misbehaving Badly, and you'll really – you'll run to the blood center. <laughs> you, will, you will never – let your ferritin get above 50. And so people who think that ferritin needs to be up around 100 don't get it. And uh, that would include most endocrinologists on this planet and most people who are chasing thyroid conditions. And cardiologists prefer to see ferritin between 20 and 50. So uh, that's that's one of the best ways to get rid of excess iron is through blood loss. Mm. Um, there are other notable ways. Um, if you want to have some fun, uh, take take your you know boyfriend, spouse's best friend, neighbor, whatever. Take their tools and leave them out on the lawn in the rain. And what's going to happen? They're going to get rusty. And they're going to freak out. But then what you do is you take a bucket of vinegar and you drop the tools in the bucket of vinegar. Have you ever done that? I have not. <laughs> you, you just haven't lived. I'm not very handy. Sorry. <laughs> you you flew off to Hawaii and to Europe and whatever, and you're not you're not taking rusty tools and putting them in vinegar. I mean, my gosh. And what happens when you do that is the rust comes off. Mm-hmm. And it does the exact same thing inside our body. So drink apple cider vinegar, take a maybe a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in, in water, and have that at least once a day. Now, my and, problem is I have stainless steel hammers. I don't have iron ones. <laughs> Touche. Okay, right. I, I, like okay. I like my hammer shining. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so apple cider vinegar is really good. Um, uh, colostrum. Colostrum has lactoferrin in it. What does lactoferrin do? Lactoferrin is the enzyme that grabs too much iron out of the digestive tract. Very effective. Um, another very proven uh, agent is quercetin. Mm. It's a great chelator. Bee pollen. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. And um, one that uh, there's an article by um, Mercola about um, IP6. It's um, it's also called rice bran. And what is IP6? It's inositol 6-phosphate. It's also known as phytic acid. Uh, we've been trained, like circus bears, but we've been trained to believe that phytic acid is an anti-nutrient. Well, it's a booga-wooga. Oh, you got to be careful. When, in fact, when you take phytic acid away from food, away from other minerals, it will chelate iron out of the body. It's pretty effective, mm-hmm. too. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's a, you know there there are a lot of, of, of agents like that, um, and I think that uh, like uh, the, what's the other one that I was going to say? Um, 
Oh, CoQ10 would be another one that can be very effective. Mm. Uh, very, very interesting properties behind that. And is, isn't it interesting that that statins that are used because people's cholesterol is rising because they have too much iron in their liver, um, the statin, what does it do? It kills CoQ10. Oh, isn't that interesting? So the very agent that could help them lower their cholesterol is removed so that the iron stays high. So um, those are some pretty proven ways to remove uh, the iron. And what, what's also important is to understand that uh, you also need a good base of magnesium because magnesium has proven properties of being an antioxidant as a mineral, and it helps to prevent the oxidative stress that is caused by iron. It's just what's happened in a lot of people's body is that the, the, the uh, balance of power is tipped to iron because most people are magnesium deficient. Mm. And most people are, in my opinion, iron toxic. Mm. That a lot of people are going to, they'll buy the magnesium one. They're like, yeah, I, I get that. But iron, oh no, I, I'm sure I'm iron anemic. Mm. And, and when you start to get into the literature, and you start to realize that, in fact, PCOS caused by oxidative stress induced by iron. Mm -hmm. Diabetes, ooh, that's a buildup of iron in the pancreas. Uh, what's heart disease? Ooh, it's iron-induced oxidative stress of the heart muscle. And what is it doing? It's killing magnesium and B6. That's what iron loves to do. One of the, one of the things that I'm, I'm learning is that people, a lot of their symptoms are a manifestation of histamine intolerance. That's fascinating when you start to get into it. So what is it, what, what enables histamines to build up in the body? Well, mast cells increase in a state when there's low magnesium and low bioavailable copper. Those are the two conditions that are needed to make more mast cells. Interesting. And where do histamines get stored? Principally in the mast cells. And so people who are low in magnesium and low in copper tend to be very sensitive. Sensitive to their environment, sensitive to their food, sensitive to stress, and what does it trigger? It triggers the release of histamines. Now, here's the interesting part. What are the enzymes that are needed to break down histamines? There are three, DAO, diamine oxidase, MAO, monoamine oxidase, and HNMT, histamine and methyltransferase. Wow, isn't that interesting? All three of them require magnesium, copper, and B6 in order to work. Mm -hmm. So if you're low in magnesium and you're low in copper because you're high in iron, you're going to have a histamine nightmare. And guess what whips up histamines into a frenzy? Iron. And guess what histamines produce? Hydrogen peroxide. And guess what happens when iron mixes with hydrogen peroxide? It's called the Fenton reaction, F-E-N-T-O-N. Put a hyphen between the F-E and the N-T-O-N so you recognize iron there. And when you mix iron with hydrogen peroxide, it creates the hydroxyl radical. 
What's the hydroxyl radical? It's the most destructive chemical in the human body. Mm. Think that maybe that's what's building up in the liver, causing these dings to the DNA? Because that's what, when you read any article on oxidative stress, what they will pummel you with in the first paragraph is how oxidative stress causes impact to the proteins, the nucleotides, and the DNA from the hydroxyl radical. Every article will talk about it, and it will cause single-strand breaks, double-strand breaks. It'll cause dings to the DNA. And what I find fascinating about all that is where are the, all the repair enzymes? Well, there are three that are really important. There's DNA ligase 1, DNA ligase 2, and DNA ligase 3. One repairs the dings, two repairs the single-strand breaks, and three repairs the double-strand breaks. All three of those enzymes are magnesium-dependent. So if, you, if you've got too much iron, you're not going to have enough magnesium. You're not, your repair enzymes aren't going to work, and so you are going to get these defects. And what, what I think is questionable now, and I'm going to sound like a, an absolute Luddite, is I'm beginning to wonder if these MTHFR transcription errors are really permanent. Or, this is going to sound really bizarre, people are going to go, huh? What's mm -hmm. he talking Could it be that when you get a lot of iron together, it becomes magnetic? Right? The liver builds up with iron. Could the liver be causing the, is it, is it causing the genes to be improperly structured because of the magnetic field that's being created? Would the magnetic field, if you change the magnetic field of the liver, would these gene expressions be changing? I don't know. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a bizarre question to ask, but what I do know is that one of my mentors is a very gifted physician, MD, PhD, who trained at um, NIH, and he actually had a chance to meet with uh, Dr. Watson of Watson and Crickfein. And in their conversation, Russ asked Dr. Watson, he said, I just have one question. Could you please tell me more about the immutable nature of genes? And Dr. Watson burst into laughter. And he said, oh, Russ, that's not how genes work. That's for the little people. They're flipping on and off all the time. So that was something, that conversation took place in the early 80s. So I'm beginning to question all of this foment about the, the transcription errors. Because very few people that I know of have really gotten better by following these very um, provocative protocols that aren't correcting the source of the problem, mm -hmm. which is the excess iron in the liver. Mm -hmm. So... Um, those are some those are some ways to get rid of the iron. If that, yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask: so people that have low ferritin, do they can they donate blood as well, or what is your advice from starting that? Should they be correcting their magnesium copper status first um, if they have really low ferritin levels, or how does that work? Yeah, that's you're you're on a roll. <laughs> uh, so uh, 
yeah, I, I tend to be very conservative. And so I encourage people who have any, anytime there's ferritin, at least over a hundred, I encourage them to get, to donate blood. If it's below 50, but they have known issues that I suspect are related to iron dysregulation, what I do is encourage them to do the protocol and what we're finding now, and again, it's, it's only two or three people that, where it's been documented, the, the numbers are beginning to pop up and it's clear that they need to then mm. donate yeah. and get rid of it. So again, if there isn't ceruloplasm, the liver won't let go of it. You, you must have ceruloplasm to have mobilization of the iron. When you get into the literature, uh, what you're going to find is that the, the, the word ceruloplasm is being very methodically edged out. They don't really want the public to know about ceruloplasm. When, when Holmberg and Laurel discovered it in 1941 uh, in their Swedish laboratory, they thought they had, you know, it was, they were reverential. They thought they'd found the Holy Grail. Big Pharma hates ceruloplasm, hates it with a passion. And so what they're trying to do now is try to convince people that ceruloplasm is causing the inflammation, not the iron, it's the ceruloplasm causing the inflammation. And they're trying to attack ceruloplasm. So yeah, I tend to be very conservative about the, the blood donations. And if someone has um, low ferritin, but they have uh, serum iron that's like 20 to 40% higher than what I think is considered ideal, then I also ask them to consider at least donating once. Because I know that anyone who, anyone can donate blood, but, but again, you want to be very careful that you don't compromise them uh, given, given other factors that might be in play. Mm -hmm. And what is the ideal uh, range of ferritin? you're looking I know you need to look at it in the context of a, a full iron panel yeah. um, but what is the, the the ideal you know target range for ferritin the, the leading cardiologists look for ferritin being between 20 and 50 and the reason why they keep it low is that they know that too much ferritin means too much iron and there's too much iron there's going to be oxidation of the heart muscle and they know that that's going to be a factor. See, the, one of the, the properties of iron that are really important for people to understand is there are three that I think are really noteworthy. Iron, particularly unbound iron, uh, causes a drop in pH. Hmm. Okay, that's not good. When there's a lower pH, that means there's lower oxygen in the tissue. Because pH and oxygen are tied to each other. And so low pH means low oxygen. And so what iron also does is by, by inference, we know that if there's less oxygen, there's going to be less ability of the mitochondria to, do, to create ATP in the electron transport chain. But what... And that's by inference, knowing that the pH is low and that the oxygen is low. But what the literature is also very clear about is that iron 
uncouples oxidative phosphorylation. And that's a very windy way of saying iron blocks the production of ATP. Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so then you begin to extrapolate from that, well, what are the conditions to create cancer? Hmm. Low pH, low oxygen, low ATP. And the connection between iron and cancer is one for one. Mm-hmm. And anyone who has cancer, I would contend, has iron dysregulation. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, oncologists don't seem to understand that. They don't understand they don't, a lot of things. <laughs> but, but what they'll tell you with a straight face is that the person got the cancer and then there was this dysregulation between copper and iron. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. That's not how the body works. Because when you really begin to understand the, the metabolism of iron and the metabolism of copper and the vital role that ceruloplasm plays, and if the ceruloplasm is not right, then you're not going to have iron be right. And when iron is not right, it's very disruptive to the cell. And there's two ways to get iron into the cell. There's through the, the front door, which is using transferrin, and then there's a back door, and it's called the dimetyl transporter um, portal, DMT1. And that is the non-transferrin bound iron. And that, I believe, is what's really doing us in. That's where the dietary iron is coming in, particularly the, the non-heme, what that means is non-meat iron is coming in through a back door and that's what's overwhelming our cells mm-hmm. and overwhelming our ability to, to metabolize. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the connection between iron and the body's use of it in relation to infections and viruses in the body? Yeah. So um, a minute ago I was alluding to the fact that when there's iron, when there's too much iron, uh, or too much unbound iron, the energy level goes down. ATP goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my wife and I have, have studied with um, a physician over in Dallas named Jerry Tennant, a very gifted physician. He's a, an ophthalmologist who became very ill uh, because of the work he was doing with laser technology. He, he was the guy who actually developed laser technology for mm-hmm. eye surgery and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And um, he contracted a viral infection that took him out of commission for seven years. And over the course of that illness, he came to realize that if he could make one cell work, he could make them all work. And so he started to de-engineer and then re-engineer how do we make cells work. And it was all based on getting energy production back up. Well, it turns out that the, the cell... The human body, we do it this way. So we all drive cars and all those cars have batteries. And the battery of the average car has a a voltage of negative 12 volts. Well, humans as a body, we put out a charge of negative 25 volts. It's actually pretty interesting. And as we lose energy, that voltage actually drops from negative 25, it goes down to 20 and 15 and 10 and zero, and then it flips positive. 
and it goes from a negative voltage to a positive voltage. Cancer is plus 30. Infections are in the low negative voltage area. And what happens is as the energy production goes down because the iron accumulation goes up, that's when the pathogens wake up. And so bacteria and fungus and virus and parasites all thrive in a low energy environment. And this was completely lost on Pasteur, who in my humble opinion was one of the greatest frauds on the planet, but it was not lost on his nemesis, his arch rival Antoine Beauchamp, who understood this whole concept of energy and the pleomorphism of these organisms. But the, the basic gist of it is that as iron builds, energy drops, and then the pathogens wake up. They're in our body. They don't, they don't come from Mars. Mm -hmm. They don't come from the person who just sneezed next to us. We, we've got them in our body. Mm -hmm. And the pathogens wake up, and they feed on that iron buffet. And they need that iron to, because they use the iron to create bullets that are called oxidants. We know what an antioxidant is, but we've never thought about what's the inverse of an antioxidant. It's an oxidant. It's, it's an oxygen molecule that has been distorted because of extra electrons or it's paired up with a hydrogen that has an extra electron. And that's what creates a lot of the problems inside our body. And those antioxidant enzymes that I alluded to a while ago neutralize those oxidants. When the liver is not swimming in iron, it is not prevented from making those antioxidant enzymes. Mm -hmm. So the pathogens are coming from the buildup of iron that's depleting our energy reserves, and then they thrive in that environment. Very, very compelling. Um, very so, different way of looking at it. Yeah. So what's it, what advice would you have for any listeners on, on addressing this topic, especially those that think or have been told that they're anemic? Um, where would I start? Um, I think it would be very helpful for people to spend a little bit of time on the Magnesium Advocacy Group uh, and look through those posts, or they can go to my website, um, gotmag.org, and all, I think I'm up to like 32 or 33 on the website, but they'll get the gist of it. But they need to spend a little bit of time understanding the physiology of iron and that it's, it's completely dangerous to study iron in isolation of the other mineral that makes it work. And that would be copper and its agent for making things happen, which is ceruloplasm. So it's, a, it's like, you know, we all know who um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are. And they're a team. We would never think about one over the other. And, and actually, I, I think it was, it was actually 
Ginger Rogers, who made Fred Astaire look so good. As, <laughs> as, as every woman I've ever talked to said, yeah, and she was dancing backwards in high heels, I might, I might add. Um, but the point is, the copper and iron are joined at the hip of ceruloplasm. So people need to really internalize that. They also need to understand that that copper is not the bad guy. We've had that conversation uh, ad nauseum, maybe. But people can go to podcasts, what, 90 and 91 or 91 and 92, whatever they are, yeah. and, and listen to our discussion about that. But they need to understand that, that copper needs to be complexed in ceruloplasm, and 95% of it is supposed to be in ceruloplasm. That's a lot of, that's, that's really important to understand. And so they need to sit with that understanding, and then they need to, I think at the very least, get a full panel, I, I refer to it as the full Monty iron panel, but they need to really get all of those markers and be able to look at it in proper context. And if, if they want to share that with their favorite mineral denialist, that's great. And if they want a second opinion, they're certainly welcome to work with someone else. And I, I would be happy to help people do that. Uh, and, and one of the things I'm going to do uh, later this fall is create a uh, school for mineral metabolism, to teach people how minerals really work and get away from all this uh, distortion that I think exists in, in a lot of people's thinking about minerals. And um, I, I think it's important for them to do the testing, and then um, if they find that they do have, what, what I really encourage people to understand is that there's a major difference between iron deficiency, which is very rare on this planet, despite all the chest beating about it, and the condition of iron dysregulation, which is very common on this planet, because most people don't have enough ceruloplasm to spit at. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And it's not by accident that this has happened. The food system, I believe, has been designed to enable that to happen. And that may be a topic for another discussion. But the point is, people need to, to understand how uh, vital the ceruloplasm is, but also how the liver responds to proper stimulus to allow the production of that enzyme to be made again. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing it time and time and time again uh, with the magpies. There, there, there clearly is a mechanism and it's, it doesn't involve a lot of, of sophistication and a lot of wizardry. It's just using basic minerals, basic vitamins, and allowing people to uh, eat real food and kind of get out of the way. And customize to their body chemistry for what they need as an individual. Absolutely, yeah. And Absolutely. can you talk a little bit about, because uh, obviously this uh, you know, discussion can induce some iron phobia in a lot of people. Um, should people still be eating red meat and liver, which contains a lot of iron, um, if they in fact feel that they're iron toxic? How is that different? Yeah. Um, so, the, the, there's a big difference between heme iron, meat iron, and non-heme iron. And the body absorbs about 20% of the iron 
in meat, and it absorbs about 5% of the iron from the non-meat sources. So yeah, meat as a rule is very rich in iron, but when it's coming from an animal, I'm inclined to think that there's other nutrients there that are going to help you to metabolize it. But what I, the way I approach it is uh, I do encourage people to eat beef liver, not calf's liver, because the calf is going to have weight. It actually turns out that liver has more copper than iron, actually has twice as much copper as iron, although we've been trained like circus bears to believe it's just iron in liver, and it's not. It has copper and zinc and iron. Um, and so that copper in that beef liver is very important to help your liver rebuild itself and make that, that enzyme. But what I encourage people to do is don't just focus on a steak, eat lamb or goat or venison or rabbit, all of which are uh, much richer in copper than a cow. And so get the, we, we, I believe, I'm one of these old guys that thinks that, that meat's a good thing. And we get a lot of benefit from the animal-based protein and the animal-based fat in the meat. And um, particularly the, the fat. Um, but I think we need to have diversity in our meat. And, and I think it's important for people to step back and, and ask themselves, so why do they only want me eating chicken and beef? Why have I been corralled into chicken and beef? And then once you come to that question, then ask yourself, is GMO corn and GMO soy the natural diet of chickens and cows? And of course, we know that's not the case. And so it really begins to uh, free you up in terms of, of realizing that there are a lot of different varieties of, of meats that can be very effective. So if, if someone is deemed iron toxic, uh, I think the key is don't panic about it and be very thoughtful about measuring it and understanding how it happened. And the most important thing they can do is stop taking multivitamins that have iron supplements. Stop taking prenatals that have iron supplements. Um, stop allowing the doctor to do iron infusions. Very bad thing to do. And, and I think that that's going to chafe a lot of people because there are a lot of people out there who swear that the only way I get through the day or way the way I get through the month is I get my, my, my injection or whatever. And that's, they're, they're, they're forcing issues in their body that, that are very, very damaging. And so I think that they can um, undertake the changes in their diet, as I just talked about with the meat, undertake the ceruloplasm protocol that's prevalently posted on the, the MAG group. And Facebook group. group. Facebook group. The Facebook group. And... Um, and know that their body is going to begin to work with that mineral once it has the right enzyme in proper in proper place. And I assume you're against taking iron supplements as well. <laughs> you didn't mention that in your your list. 
Yeah, I think yeah. that's a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, when, when you can put a magnet in a cereal box and pull out cereal with it, yeah. and they've done that, it's like, no, you don't want it. And the thing is, the what's, what's important to do is if someone truly believes that they are, quote, iron anemic, this is what I would recommend. I would recommend that they increase their intake of magnesium, that they increase their intake of bee pollen, which has a wonderful source of B vitamins, particularly B2, which is riboflavin. And I would encourage them to increase their intake of whole food vitamin C, because all of those are known agents to increase the functionality of iron metabolism. And they are all water soluble. Then, if that still didn't correct it, then I would say, hey, let's turn to cod liver oil and let's get some retinol into your liver because you probably have been dancing with a certain supplement to your demise and you've been hosing your liver's ability to make ceruloplasm. So let's get the cod liver oil back in the game, get the retinol back in the game. And what you'll find out is that retinol regulates iron metabolism. And I just read an article uh, just a couple days ago that clearly implicates that this was back in the 1940s when they didn't know anything. There was just a bunch of fools back then. But what they discovered is that people who were short on retinol were deemed anemic. And when they gave them retinol, guess what happened? The anemia went away without giving them iron. And so I think there are a lot of things we can do thoughtfully to study it, to measure it, and to use non-iron supplements to correct it long before we start poisoning people with iron. Because what happens with supplemental iron is it is, in fact, perceived as a poison by the body, by the liver, and it, there's a sudden mobilization of glutathione, which burns up a lot of magnesium, because you can't make glutathione without magnesium in, in the phase one detox. And it burns up a lot of magnesium. And guess what happens when people take iron supplements? They get constipation. Why would they get constipation? Because they burned up a lot of magnesium, which then affected the methylation, and it affected potassium status, both of which are highly implicated in constipation, all because of the iron. So it's just, it's, it's viewing the issue with a, with a much more global perspective to understand what's really going on and not be uh, an adolescent uh, who's watching uh, Bill Murray's Caddyshack and saying, oh, you, you need more iron. Boom, let's give you more iron. And that's what most people <laughs> do. I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that, that's, actually, I think that's where most doctors get their final training. <laughs> Is it the Caddyshack School of... They should uh, show that film in class. Exactly. <laughs> and so, I, and I've read that uh, iron buildup in the liver can cause anger. The liver is sort of the seat of anger yep. in traditional Chinese medicine. Can you talk a little on that? And it be one of the reasons why people in the United States can tend to be very aggressive, just as a kind of a culture 
And, yeah. and there's a lot of angry people here, even though the, they enjoy anger. a lot of uh, privilege. Yeah, they, you, you know, there's an expression. Uh, that person has their ire up, referring to their angers up. Well, that's referring to iron. And um, it's actually iron in the liver and iron in the amygdala. Because uh, when, the, when the body starts to store iron, it's going to go to the liver first, then it's going to go to the pancreas and the kidneys, and then it's going to go to the endocrine glands, and then it's going to go to the joints, and then eventually as we age, it's going to go to our brain. And 100% of all neurodegeneration is caused by buildup of iron because of a lack of ceruloplasmin. Not and it's the enzyme form of ceruloplasm, not the uh, immunological or immunoresponsive form. But um, yeah, the buildup of iron in the liver does in fact create a more emotional state that is laden with anger. And again, as you said, the, the Chinese have known this for thousands of years. And um, what I'm seeing in some of my clients is as they begin to address this issue, they've noted that they are much calmer and much less um, reactive to certain circumstances around their, their situations. I noticed that as well as I began detoxing and um, working on my adrenal health, uh, you know, resting and, and whatnot and, and detoxing generally and raising my ceruloplasmin slowly but surely, I right. noticed I used to be really uncharacteristically angry. And over a few years, that dramatically, it's gone away completely. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's, uh, that is a, a byproduct of this process that is wonderful. But I think your point about there are a lot of angry people in this country, and I think that's the source of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of stress in, in life on this planet. And there's a lot of stress in this country. But I think when you begin to piece together what's the changes that have been made in the food system and that it causes a buildup of iron in the liver, it begins to make more sense. Mm-hmm. The other thing that for people to know is that um, the liver enzymes – will rise when there's too much iron in the liver. And when those liver enzymes start to to pop up, it's because liver tissue is dying. That's why the liver enzymes are showing up. And And their liver tissue is dying because of oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is just a very fancy way of saying rust. And so people need to understand, you know, back to my reference to magnesium versus iron. I think that, that at the very base of it, life, our life is really managing those two minerals. You have magnesium and you have iron. And what are they fighting over? They're fighting over oxygen all day long. So what's magnesium oxide? We just celebrated the 4th of July. And what did we have? Fireworks. What are those fireworks made of? Magnesium oxide. And the Chinese discovered that about 4,000 years ago. And you can look up YouTube videos of magnesium oxide fire, and what you'll find is that magnesium oxide is the brightest burning fire on the planet. Do you know what iron oxide is? It's rust. And so we have 
bright light and death. So we, have, we basically have this force of good and evil in our body through these minerals. And then when you begin to realize that magnesium is very much tied to progesterone and iron is very much tied to estrogen, you begin to get, begin to get into some of the other dynamics of the body and many other uh, chemicals and, and hormones that we can talk about. But a lot of people are very mindful of that dynamic between progesterone and estrogen, especially in a woman's body. And what are most women? Estrogen dominant, and they don't have enough progesterone. And why are they estrogen dominant? Because they're iron toxic. And why, why does the body do that? Because the body prefers to use ceruloplasm as the antioxidant to control iron. But when you don't have enough ceruloplasm, the body goes to plan B, which is called estrogen, because estrogen is an antioxidant. And if there's too much iron, you can't have enough magnesium in B6, because that's what it takes to make progesterone. And what's fascinating is one of my mentors was um, a, a gynecologist by the name of Guy Abraham. He was a, a professor at the uh, UCLA School of Medicine, and he coined four different types of PMS. And it was anxiety, bloating, craving, and depression. And what he discovered is that all four of those were ameliorated, were, were eliminated completely when he added magnesium and B6 to their body. And so when, so what, when women have those symptoms of PMS, it's because the iron is building in their body that's syncing up with the estrogen that's building in their body as they go through their cycle. And if there's too much iron, it's burning out the magnesium and the B6 that's causing those symptoms of PMS. And what are, what are people finding? That if they take progesterone, all that goes away. Now, I'm not a big fan of taking hormones, as you know, but, but it's very clear that there are these major pistons that are completely out of sync with each other, but no one talks about iron because it's hiding behind an iron curtain. And I think that, that in fact, iron dysfunction, iron dysregulation is the fuel of all disease, what we call disease, and it's, it's really the backbone of allopathic medicine. But the tragedy is that's a medicine has become a double-blind experiment because neither the doctor nor the patient really knows what's going on. The doctor and the patient don't know about iron. They don't know that it's the iron causing all the problems. And they don't know the flip side of it is the medications that are being used aren't going to solve the problem. So it's a double-blind. And that's, that's the, to me, the, the, the tragedy is, and it's not that doctors are bad people, because we know they're not. Doctors are really caring people, but they have been trained very poorly or very incompletely and very inadequately to really understand how the body works. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important message for people to, to 
be open-minded about what their mineral denialist really does know and where are the blind spots and what they don't know and be very willing to work with folks like you and me to get greater insight about what's really going on. Very, very profound. A very interesting conversation. Thank you, Morley. Thank you. you. Why don't you uh, tell the listeners where they can learn more about you and more about iron toxicity? Um, the, the easiest way to, to learn more about me, I guess, would be to go to uh, either my website, the gotmag.org website, M A G. <laughs> I can't even spell it. G O T M A G dot O R G. Um, and there's a lot of information there, has information about my background. Um, and that's where people can order tests and things like that. Uh, but also, the um, Facebook group is called the Magnesium Advocacy Group. And uh, you can just sign up for that and we'll bring you in and, and let you start to go through the files and uh, see how courageous you are to go into. There are literally thousands and thousands of, of articles and artifacts and things, but a lot of good information in there. And um, the folks that want to uh, reach out to me, certainly welcome to do either through my email address, which is my first name, Morley, M-O-R-L-E-Y, at gotmag.org, or they're certainly welcome to call me on my cell phone, uh, area code 847-922-8061. You are certainly brave to give your phone number. (laughs) uh, You know, actually, I've I've done that every time, and, you know, there are a few people that will call me, but but they're very uh, respectful about it, and I... I appreciate that people are looking for answers to questions yeah. that they've got, so I'm, I'm very happy to do that. But I'm really, I'm particularly grateful for the chance to chat with you because uh, you have a very loyal following. People really enjoy uh, what you bring to this whole process, and I, I, I welcome the platform that you create to allow people like me to kind of bang our gums and yammer away about things because I, I think it's important for people to hear this. Well, it's my pleasure. I have fun doing it and learning a lot myself in the process. That's great. Well, again, thanks for the opportunity. And um, I look forward to seeing how people uh, respond to this. Have you decided whether you're going to do this as a, a one one shot or is it going to be split or how are you going to do it? One shot. I'm going to do one shot. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, it should be easier. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fine. However you want to do it. Well, I hope it, I hope it does help people. I know it's going to ruffle feathers uh, because there's a lot of, of um, conviction about this. And I'll leave people with this one last thought from one of my favorite um, thinkers. Uh, Mark Twain once said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't so. And my message to folks is what you think you know about iron and iron deficiency and iron anemia just ain't so. And I encourage people to take the time to listen to this. I mean, at this point, I guess they they would have to have listened to it. But certainly take the time to do some more research. And don't hesitate. If you have questions, uh, feel free to to reach out. I'll be happy to have that uh, opportunity to discuss it. Well, thank you so much, Morley. And listeners, again, thank you so much for joining us on the Live to 110 podcast. 
I know that was really eye-opening for a lot of you, and I hope it helps many of you figure out what's going on with you and yet another underlying root cause of your health conditions. You can learn more about me at liveto110.com and learn about my healing and detox program, mineralpower.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Live to 110 podcast.